Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast, where we discuss a range of issues in the fast-moving field of biomedical informatics. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie, and we are coming to you from Penn Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find us at bmipodcast.org. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by co-host Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We're coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedule allows. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion and this is episode zero. Let's start with host introductions. I am the Edward Rose Professor of Informatics and Director of the Institute for Biomedical Informatics here at Penn Medicine. I'm also director of the Division of Informatics in the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Informatics. My administrative role here is to build and foster an informatics ecosystem across the entire university. My vision is that everyone should have access to the informatics methods, software, and expertise they need to advance both their basic science and clinical research projects. My own research focuses on the development and application of artificial intelligence and machine learning methods for finding complex patterns in big data. I've worked for many years in the genetics and genomics space and more recently have started working with electronic health record data. Marilyn, tell us about yourself and your role here at Penn Medicine. Great. Hi, I'm Marilyn Ritchie. I am a professor in the Department of Genetics and director for the Center for Translational Bioinformatics here at Penn Medicine. I'm also the associate director for bioinformatics in the Institute for Biomedical Informatics and associate director of the Penn Center for Precision Medicine. My administrative role is to build the infrastructure and environment to link electronic health records with genomic data and facilitate gene disease discovery relationships. I also spend a lot of effort thinking about how to expand our biobank, called the Penn Medicine Biobank, and how we can use these data to facilitate returning results to patients and providers, especially in the area of pharmacogenomics. My own research is focused on developing computational and statistical approaches for integrating different types of data, including multi-omics data, genetics and the environment, and broad clinical data from electronic health records for improving our understanding of human health and disease. For our first segment of the podcast, uh, we're going to tell you what we've been up to the last few weeks. Marilyn, what have you been up to? Well, I have very much been in a writing season for the last two or three months. Uh, Several of the trainees in the lab have been working on papers. So I currently have five graduate students and three postdocs. And I think six out of the eight of them are currently working on papers. So it's been a lot of writing and editing. Um, I am also doing a lot of work in collaboration with other leaders here at Penn. we have a, a biobank named the Penn Medicine Biobank, and we're, we're doing a lot of work thinking about the size and scope of that. So I've been doing a lot of writing in that space. 
And then Grant's season never seemed to end for me this summer. There were some RFAs and some regular deadlines, and it's just been one Grant after the next after the next, and I've got another one going in next week. Never ends. Never ends. Yeah, <laughs> so lots of writing. And Jason, how about you? What have you been up to? Well, it's the beginning of the, of the semester here at the University of Pennsylvania. So we've been in session now for about two and a half, three weeks. And so I have spent a lot of time meeting with students. I've had a uh, bunch of undergraduate students in my lab uh, interested in working in my lab. And so I've been meeting with them, telling them about our research projects, helping them think through how they might get involved. Um, it's also, uh, we have a new uh, group of graduate students here at University of Pennsylvania, so I've met with a few graduate students to talk about potential rotation projects. Um, and I've also, been, of course, been meeting with my own students as they come back from summer vacation and get geared up for uh, their next round of papers and productivity. So I've been very busy meeting with students the last few weeks. Um, I'm also working on an R01, a grant, a research grant for the October 5th NIH deadline on uh, ideas to develop a unbiased platform for the evaluation of machine learning algorithms. I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, working hard on that right now, try to get that in. Uh, that's a collaboration with John Holmes here at Penn. Um, also attended the uh, genetics retreat. Our Department of Genetics has an annual retreat. We had an off-site retreat this year, and that went really well. I really enjoyed it. I was uh, very impressed with the diversity of, um, uh, of research going on in the department, but there was a really good showing uh, in the computational biology and bioinformatics space. And Marilyn, you actually led a session that I participated in that was really fun and I thought went really well. Um, and also been working on budgets uh, as an institute director. We're constantly reviewing budgets, planning budgets. Um, so I'm kind of in that beginning process of planning the FY21 budget for my institute. And um, so in addition to tons of other administrative things, endless meetings, committees, et cetera, which I won't bore you guys with. But uh, that's what I, uh, in a nutshell, what I've been up to the last two or three weeks. My name is Dr. William Hirsch. I am professor and chair of the Department of Medical Informatics and Clinical Epidemiology in the School of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. My website is www.billhersh.info. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Okay, on to our next segment. Uh, each podcast, uh, we plan to pick a hot topic for discussion, and today our topic is deep phenotyping. Marilyn's going to introduce this topic for us. Okay, great. So the topic of deep phenotyping, at least in the context that, that we're talking about it today, is in regards to electronic health records. So what people have historically done is use algorithms to phenotype or identify particular disease uh, categories in individuals and electronic health records using kind of complicated but uh, clear algorithms that are using a bunch of if-then-else statements. So you'll go through the health record and say, if people have this disease or that symptom and this medication, then they have a phenotype, else they have some other 
type of phenotype or else they're a control, they're a healthy person. One of the things that we've seen more and more are researchers using machine learning for this type of approach instead of these more straightforward algorithms. In particular, I've noticed a lot of companies getting really excited about this space. Um, I'll mention two that I've seen, and, and I'll preface by saying that I have no relationship, neither of us do, with either of these companies. They are not sponsoring, and, and I actually have not used either tool. These are just kind of uh, pitches that I've seen. One of them is called IOSD. This is a topological data analysis tool that is used in the cloud. It is really slick. It takes large swaths of electronic health record data, does this topological data analysis, and spits out clusters of patients who are like one another and different from other types of patients. This tool looks really powerful, and as I said, it's run in the cloud and is really fast. However, uh, the price point is something, at least when I saw the pitch, that was out of scope for most academics. So not something I've tried, not an ad, not a sponsor. Um, the other one that I've seen more recently is called GNS Healthcare, and they use a Bayesian causal modeling framework in the context of machine learning to do a very similar type of analysis. They try to model not only clusters of patients, but they try to predict the disease trajectory of patients and what is likely to happen to them in the future based on data they've seen on other patients who look like them. Again, GNS Healthcare, this is not an ad. I've never used the tool and have no relationship with that company and neither does Jason. So one of the things that we've been getting more excited about as well as other academics is could we take these ideas use them in the context of electronic health records in an open source way so that we can learn from one another and build upon the tools. I mean, as we've seen in lots of other areas, the open source data model really helps us kind of take ideas and build upon them based on what each of our different interdisciplinary skills bring to the table. So the way that I've been looking at it are, you know, how are things like Netflix and Amazon using these machine learning algorithms to make predictions about patterns that they see in data. Can we use those same algorithms in electronic health record data where we have disease diagnoses, we have medications, we have clinical labs, we have procedures. It's the same data types. It's just telling us something different. So instead of what movie I'm likely to, to want to watch or what jeans I should buy or what pair of shoes, tell me you know, what phenotype is somebody likely to develop next? Or, you know, if people look like this type of patient and this is what happened to them, this is what's likely to happen to this type of patient. I don't know, Jason, have you been, been following the literature in this space? So I'm really deeply fascinated by deep phenotyping. Um, and it, you know, what I've seen is that we've barely scratched the surface on this. I think there is so much interesting work to do in, in the space of defining phenotypes from EHR data. You know, what most of us do is just use ICD codes, right, to, to define diseases. Um, and of course, there are lots of limitations to ICD codes because they're primarily used for billing purposes and aren't always an accurate representation of what actual disease a patient has. So there's an inherent bias in ICD codes. So 
you know, being able to define more accurately what phenotype a person has from their laboratory measures, from their medication history, et cetera, just, I don't know, I find it to be such a fascinating and challenging uh, task. Um, you know, take, for example, Alzheimer's disease. You know, there's an I, there are ICD codes for Alzheimer's disease. And, but how do you know if somebody really has Alzheimer's disease? Uh, I'm not even sure anybody really knows exactly what Alzheimer's disease is and whether a patient has it or not. But how, it's, it's an interesting methodologic challenge. How do, you, how do you go into the electronic health record and determine what patients should have a particular phenotypic label like Alzheimer's disease? Um, to some degree, it's an unsupervised machine learning problem, right? Because you don't know what the label is. And so you could take a collection of patients that you maybe maybe have something that resembles Alzheimer's disease and do a cluster analysis based on all their clinical data and try to identify subgroups and then uh, go back and try to figure out what those subgroups are and come up with labels for them that makes clinical sense. That's certainly one approach. And in the supervised sense, it's more challenging because you don't know necessarily what the truth is, right? <laughs> what you're trying to predict. So anyway, I haven't done a lot of work in this space. I, I want to do more work in this space because I'm a methodologist. I develop machine learning methods and I just find it really, really interesting. I, I, and there's so much work to do. So for the young people out there listening, I think this is a really hot area that uh, to jump into. Yeah. And I think, you know, getting your lab more involved in this would be really helpful because you've done a lot of work in the space of, well, not only just methods, but um, imputation, which is a huge issue with this type of modeling. So certainly we have lots of data that are present in the EHR, but what do we do about the information that's not there? So this would be, you know, it's data that's missing, not at random. Some of it will be missing because a person does not have that symptom the, there's no indication for which the doctor should order that clinical lab, so that patient doesn't have the lab data. But sometimes the patient has exactly the same symptoms and, as another patient, and they should have the test, but they're afraid of needles, and so they don't go in for the test. Or they need an MRI, but they're you know, terrified and, and claustrophobic, and so they won't go into the machine. Or their insurance won't cover the test. Or... You know, they don't have transportation to get back to the medical center to get the test. And so when the data are missing, you know, how you incorporate that into this unsupervised machine learning, it, it's, it's a huge question. It, and imputing it, I'm not even sure how you impute it because we don't know why it's missing. Yeah, you've touched on one of the biggest issues with working with electronic health record data, certainly from a machine learning point of view, is all the missing data and, and not really having a complete understanding of how or why the data is missing and whether it's random or non-random and how to deal with it. We've certainly done a little bit of work on deep learning uh, methods for imputing missing data where you take advantage of all the patterns in the data and all the, the, the correlation structure of the data to try to fill in a missing value. There are certainly other methods that have been developed for that, like mice. Um, so yeah, this is, this is one of the big, I would say the biggest challenges in deep phenotyping is dealing with missing data. Yep, I would agree with that. So for all the young people, this is <laughs> an area to focus on. All right. Thanks, Marilyn. That was a great topic for today. And uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll circle back to this um, uh, with some of our uh, paper presentations and other discussion topics. Um, this is definitely a recurring theme in work with the HR data, how, how to define better phenotypes.
Welcome to our news segment. Our goal is to bring to you some interesting news items that have caught our eye over the last few weeks. Uh, our goal is not to be comprehensive, but to present some uh, interesting things that we've come across. Uh, the first news item today is that it was recently National Health IT Week, which uh, I did not know about before, but um, is an annual thing. It was held uh, September 23rd through 27th uh, in 2019. The theme this year was supporting healthy communities. Uh, you can get information about Health IT Week at healthit.org. And uh, this is their description of Health IT Week. Uh, it's a nationwide action week focused on catalyzing change within the U.S. health system through the application of information and technology. Founded by the Healthcare Information and Management System Society, or HIMSS, and the Institute for ePolicy in 2006, the week-long celebration comprises partner-driven activities and events led by the efforts of national health stakeholders. Participants include the administration, congressional, federal and state agencies, providers, nonprofit organizations, and more. In Washington, D.C. and beyond, stakeholders collaborate toward actionable outcomes that demonstrate the power that information and technology have to transform health in the U.S. and around the globe. Uh, we will have a, a link uh, to Health IT Week in the show notes, and if this is of interest to you, uh, be sure and put it on your calendar for 2020. All right, our next news item is a new paper that caught my eye uh, that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine uh, recently. This paper looked at 1,461 data breaches that happened between October 2009 and July 2019. The authors found that 169 million people have had some form of health-related information exposed because of hackers. That is an amazing number. Over 70% of the breaches comprise sensitive demographic or financial data that could lead to identity theft or even financial fraud, I suppose. Uh, more than 20 breaches comprise sensitive health information, uh, which affected uh, 2 million people. Uh, so this is an interesting paper and certainly touches on the important topic of privacy and security among healthcare data. Uh, this was reported by Michigan State University, and we will have a link uh, in the show notes uh, to the paper uh, and the press release. All right, our uh, next news item, um, I uh, ran across this paper as a study published in Jamia Open from August uh, of 2019. And uh, the authors linked Amazon reviews to FDA food recalls from 2012 to 2014. And then they used text mining and machine learning to develop predictive models of food recalls based on Amazon reviews. They achieved 74% accuracy and then used their model to identify additional food products that may need to be recalled. Uh, this seems like a, a really interesting example of machine learning that could have a big impact on public health. Uh, and we'll have a link in the show notes uh, for this paper if you're interested. And finally, since we just mentioned Jamia Open, it's worth noting that they passed their one-year anniversary earlier this summer uh, as a journal. Uh, this is an online-only journal uh, that has been uh, a great addition to the roster of informatics journals. And in celebration of their anniversary, they compiled a highlights list of published papers, and we will include a link uh, on the webpage uh, to, uh, uh, to that resource. And that's it for the news today. 
Okay, in this segment, uh, we, uh, Marilyn and I, will pick a research paper to discuss each episode. And uh, today uh, we have picked High Performance Medicine, The Convergence of Human and Artificial Intelligence by Dr. Eric Topol. Uh, this was published in January of this year, 2019, in the journal Nature Medicine, volume 25, pages 44 to 56. And we will have a link in the show notes uh, to this paper if you're interested. I picked this paper because um, it really is the first paper to provide a comprehensive review of uh, deep learning neural networks in the clinical literature uh, application to clinical problems. And um, this, this is really a, um, a very comprehensive review of clinical applications, mostly of, of, of deep learning. And uh, in the introduction to this paper, uh, the author cites, uh, states, and I'm going to quote here, almost every type of clinician ranging from specialty doctor to paramedic will be using AI te technology and in particular deep learning uh, in the future. And I absolutely agree with him. I think there's no question. I mean, we use AI and machine learning every day on our smartphones. Um, you know, self-driving cars are just around the corner. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that AI and machine learning is going to permeate every aspect of healthcare and, and clinical practice. Uh, we're, we're getting close to that. So, so that's coming. So, um, the uh, first part of this paper gives a little bit of a, a background on deep learning, where it came from, some of the example applications. If you're looking for a good review on how deep learning works, this is not the review for you. Um, but if you, want a, if you want a comprehensive coverage, at least as of about a year ago when this paper was submitted, um, of the deep learning literature with application to, to, to clinical problems, this is, a, this is an outstanding review. So there are sections here in the paper looking at pathology applications, uh, dermatology, uh, ophthalmology, um, cardiology, gastroenterology, and mental health uh, with lots and lots of citations. Uh, it's really amazing how the deep learning literature uh, has really just exploded in, in, uh, in medicine just in the last two or three years. Uh, most of the papers that are cited here are just certainly within the last five years. Um, the, uh, once uh, the author has finished reviewing these different clinical applications, there are then a couple sections on general discussion topics, you know, so, some more additional examples of how AI and deep learning might be used um, in, in health systems, like for example, for predicting the, the risk of uh, hospital readmission for a patient, which is a a topic everybody's interested in right now to help help cut costs uh, in the in the health system. Um, there's a table, table three here in the paper, um, kind of gives a range of some of the applications um, for for uh, some of these some of these applications. Uh, for example, all cause mortality, predicting readmission, predicting sepsis. Um, predicting C. diff infection, uh, diagnosing disease, uh, dementia and Alzheimer disease is listed here, which we just talked about, uh, mortality after cancer chemotherapy, suicide, delirium. So it's a lot of, lot of interesting applications. Um, and uh, at the end of this paper, um, there is a section on limitations and challenges. Um, I think uh, there are some really good points brought up here, uh, for example, 
Um, one of the first things the author says is that the state of AI hype has far exceeded the state of AI science. And I think that's absolutely true. There's a lot more hype about AI than, than the science that's there to back it up. Um, and we can talk about that. They talk about IBM Watson as an example of that. There was a lot of hype around IBM Watson. IBM pushed Watson out into the healthcare domain and had very limited success with that. Uh, you know, health, these health, health outcomes that we've just been talking about are very complex and, and hard for experts to deal with. Um, and to expect an AI to perform as well or better than a human, I think, is premature. And I, I'm a big fan of IBM Watson. I think the technology is outstanding. Um, I just think IBM you know, made a mistake in pushing it out into the healthcare domain so quickly. I think it needed a little more time to develop. Uh, they talk about the black box nature of deep learning algorithms, the interpretability problem, which is a big one and something that is very important in the healthcare domain where we want the results of a machine learning algorithm or a deep learning algorithm to be actionable. We want to understand what it's telling us and be able to develop an action plan that we can deliver to a patient. So that's, uh, and actually I would say that's probably one of the hottest topics of AI and machine learning research right now is how do we, how do we interpret a machine learning result and make it actionable? Uh, and then there's a section here about privacy and security, um, which is also uh, a huge, huge important topic. I think, um, I think the paper could have, uh, I would have liked to have seen the author maybe dive a little deeper into some of these limitations. Because um, if you read the paper, um, I think um, you could come away with the idea that AI is, is truly ready to tackle a lot of these problems. And I think the limitations are important and will stand in our way for, for a little, some time to come. So anyway, I, I think this is, if you're interested in deep learning, you're interested in some examples of how machine learning, AI, deep learning can impact uh, healthcare related problems. I think this is an excellent review, good starting point, a good way to get to know the literature. Um, but I think they, um, but it, like I said, it's, it's not a place where you're going to go to learn how to do deep learning or what deep, you know, the intricate details of deep learning. Um, so uh, anyway, I recommend it. Um, it's uh, very current. Um, I'll just say I had a couple additional thoughts about this paper. Um, first of all, the word artificial intelligence here is in the title. I'm not sure I think of deep learning as an AI. I think, you know, when I think of AI, I think of an intelligent system that can reason, that can make decisions. You know, deep learning is really just looking at patterns and making a prediction. Um, and uh, I would call that machine learning. I think deep learning is nothing but, a, in most cases, a machine learning algorithm. Uh, maybe reinforcement learning starts to get into maybe you know mimicking human behavior, but but I think um, I think artificial intelligence should be reserved for really talking about um, mimicking everything a human does, right? Uh, all the all the different aspects that go into reasoning and decision making that a clinician would do. And, and I think deep learning is just one component of that. Yeah, I agree. So that, that was um, a thought I had. Um, uh, a lot of the success stories in deep learning around image analysis, uh, looking at uh, images of skin, looking at radiographic images, uh, pathologic images, etc. And deep learning's had a lot of success in that space hasn't had quite as much success in the genomic space. And so I find that really fascinating why it's not so good uh, at genomics. So something something for our listeners to think about. Um, 
You know, the other thing that struck me uh, about this paper, if you look through the reference list, and there are over 200 references in here, so this is a very well-referenced paper. Um, I was surprised as a biomedical informatician how, uh, how few uh, citations there were to work published in our flagship journals, like the Journal of Biomedical Informatics, the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association, Bioinformatics, PLOS Computational Biology. They're, they're almost zero in here. Most of the deep learning papers have been published in clinical journals, which I find really fascinating um, that, that the, the fundamental work on machine learning and AI has, has not been presented or communicated through the informatics venue, but really more through the clinical venue. So I don't, I don't know that we need to talk about that necessarily, but it was just an interesting observation um, and some, something, I, something I noticed. Um, and uh, I'll just, before I turn it over to Marilyn for her comments, I'll just mention one more paper that is worth looking at. Um, and this is a paper, a really interesting deep learning paper that's about a year older than Eric Topol's paper uh, called Opportunities and Obstacles for Deep Learning in Biology and Medicine. And this is also an outstanding review. Um, and the interesting thing, uh, uh, Ching, C-H-I-N-G, is the first author on this paper. It was published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface in April of 2018, volume 15. Um, the interesting thing about this paper is this was a crowdsourced paper. There are something like 36 authors on this paper. And what the authors did, and this was a team led by Casey Green, who's a professor here at the University of Pennsylvania, one of our bioinformaticians. Uh, what they did was they... Uh, got a bunch of people together. Everybody uh, crowdsourced the writing of this paper. Um, they did it through, I think it was GitHub. Uh, so they had a project, an online project that people contributed text to and they worked together as a team to, you know, authors were added over time that expressed interest in participating. I think, I think anybody that wanted to could have participated in writing this paper. So it really is a wisdom of the crowd's uh, written paper, which is kind of interesting. So not only did I think they did a good job writing this paper, and, and, and I would almost uh, recommend reading this paper first before you read Eric Topol's paper. Uh, and it touches on some of the more basic science uh, applications of deep learning as well. Um, so anyway, two papers. Uh, we'll have links on, in, in the show notes to uh, both of these papers, but both highly recommended. Yeah, that was a great summary of, yeah, a fabulous paper um, by Eric Topol. The, one of the points that you made towards the end about um, how deep learning is doing well on images but not as well on genomics, um, I spent a little bit of time thinking about that. And I wonder if it has to do with the reality that, that when it's learning the imaging data, so it's identifying evidence of stroke or looking at pathology samples for tumors and, and different types of tumors. There's, there's ground truth that is known by pathologists or radiologists that the machine learning can use as training samples. Mm. And so based on all of those training samples where we know the truth, it learns what the patterns should look like in the images so that it can make predictions and identify things in images it's never seen before. I think in, in genomics, we certainly know the patterns for Mendelian disease, like cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease, but we don't know what the genomic pattern is for Alzheimer's disease or type 2 diabetes. And so we don't know what truth to train the models on. And so I think 
I think that's why it's struggling to perform well there. We need we need some truth to, to learn on. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point, Marilyn. And, um, you know, genomics is just a completely different beast uh, than imaging. Um, it's it's um, structured very differently. It means very different things. Um, uh, in some ways, it's probably messier and um, more nonlinear than, you know, than image data. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, I think one should be cautious about um, uh, diving into deep learning with hopes that you're going to get similar results with genomics data than, than you will with image data, which is what most of this review is focused on, those kind of applications. But there are some success stories, and I think we'll probably cover some of those in future episodes. I can think of a couple recent papers by leaders in our field that uh, have tackled the genomics problems with good results. I'm thinking of some of Olga Troinskaya's work, for mm -hmm. example. Trey Eidekers had some nice papers in this space. So, um, you know, we'll probably uh, cover some of these papers in future episodes. Yeah. The one other thing I thought I'd mention, um, I noticed when I was, I was actually looking for um, Eric's review paper uh, on the internet and came across that he also recently published a book on the same topic, which I didn't know. So it's called Deep Medicine, um, Making Healthcare Human Again. And I didn't read the book yet, but I'm fascinated and I want to read it. But I read a couple of news articles about it. What I thought was really interesting that um, that apparently is in this book is it, there's a lot of pushback about AI and machine learning and medicine and this kind of fear in the lay public that that what this might mean is that it takes the doctor out of the equation. Oh, I've heard things like we're just going to have machines do the diagnoses and we're just going to have robots for doctors instead of doctors. And he makes points in this book about how what we're going to do in the future is use the machines to do what machines are good at, identify the patterns. It's not that a radiologist won't also read the image, but instead of a radiologist having to look at all of the image, the machine can tell the radiologist, focus here, here, and here. This is where we see patterns that require a human to interface with it and look. And that's going to take so much time away from a doctor sifting through information that's meaningless and give them more time to interface with the patient, which, which that's the part that doctors are good at. It's the human interaction that machines will never be good at. And so, so I'm really excited to read this book because when I just talk to, to people in the community about AI and healthcare, there seems to be a, a reticence and a pushback that, that I think if you really take a step back and think about what it could be used for, I think there's hope that it's going to put the doctors back in the clinic and away from the computer. Yeah, those those are really, really good points. I have not read Eric Topol's book yet either. It's certainly on my reading list. But um, th And this is a theme that will probably come up over and over again in, in, as we talk about AI in future episodes, but I'm, I'm a big believer that AI is not going to replace humans. I really see AI as an, uh, an assistant, right? It's there to help us just like we help each other. Um, you know, medicine is not practiced in isolation. It's not just a nurse or a clinician or a physician. Uh, we work as teams, right, to, to help treat a patient. Um, and, and I see AI as being part of that team and, and, the, and there, that there will be a give and take between the humans and the AI and each will, will help the other and, and it'll just be another team member and, um, and, and the team will ultimately treat the patient, right, not the AI. So I agree, I agree completely. All right, uh, that ends this segment. Good Journal Club. Okay, now uh, on to our uh, 
recurring segment on conferences. What we would like to do is to give uh, listeners some ideas about upcoming conferences, what they're about, and um, what you might want to participate in. Um, the first conference we would like to mention is the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, or PSB. And I've taken a brief description from their webpage, which I'm just going to read quickly. The Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing 2020 is an international multidisciplinary conference for the presentation and discussion of current research in the theory and application of computational methods in problems of biological significance. Papers and presentations are rigorously peer-reviewed and are published in an archival proceedings volume. 2020 marks the 25th anniversary of PSB. Uh, and it'll be held January 3rd through 7th um, uh, this coming year at the Fairmont Orchid Hotel on the Big Island of Hawaii. And I'll just say this is one of my favorite conferences. Uh, the organizers do a fantastic job. Uh, I went to my first one, I think about 20, I think this will be 20 years for me. Um, and I've gone almost every year for the last 20 years. And it's uh, definitely one of my favorites and, and highly recommend. Marilyn, you're an organizer for PSB. Is there anything you want to say about it? I would just say that I agree. It's my favorite conference of the year. Um, it is the 25th anniversary, and the organizers have been talking a lot. We have some fun, kind of different things planned to celebrate the 25th anniversary. We had a record number of publication submissions this year, and so um, the papers that got selected were the cream of the crop, and uh, the schedule should be coming out sometime in the next month. Um, the last thing I would say is, uh, depending on the timing of when this actually gets out, uh, pay attention to the, the key dates that are on the website. So it's psb.stanford.edu. Uh, there's still a, a chance to submit abstracts if you want to try to attend. And if not this year, look for it next year. Papers are usually due sometime in the summer. So Yeah, usually the end of July. Okay, uh, next we'd like to mention the uh, American Medical Informatics Association Annual Symposium, and here's a brief description taken from their webpage. It says, join us at the AMIA 2019 Annual Symposium, the foremost symposium for the science and practice of biomedical informatics. The AMIA 2019 Annual Symposium to be held at the Washington Hilton in Washington, D.C., November 16th through 20th, uh, 2019, uh, it will build on more than 40 years of sharing pioneering research and insights for leveraging information to improve human health. And I'll just say that this is really the flagship uh, conference for the discipline of biomedical informatics, and it uh, really very comprehensively uh, tackles uh, clinical informatics, clinical research informatics, uh, and a number of other related areas. So highly recommend a great chance to network, to meet people, to see great science, uh, great events, uh, get involved with AMIA organization and uh, leadership. And uh, yeah, it's highly recommended. And, and papers for AMIA are usually due in March. So if you can't make it this year, uh, think about submitting a paper for the uh, spring deadline for the uh, AMIA 2020 symposium. All right, and finally, we want to mention the AMIA Informatics Summit. Um, this is a description from their webpage. The AMIA 2020 Informatics Summit will focus on cutting-edge research around four main areas, translational bioinformatics, clinical research informatics, implementation informatics, and data science. The meeting will bring together researchers from these fields and beyond to share their work and promote a vibrant exchange of ideas leading to new collaborations, innovation, and discovery. 
The summit will take place March 23rd to the 26th in Houston, Texas. Um, I'm actually the vice chair this year of the Translational Bioinformatics track, and we are right in the thick of reviews of papers right now. We got, I think, over 400 submissions, so it's about 100 wow. submissions per track. Uh, lots of really exciting papers. We're talking about the keynotes. It looks like it's going to be a great meeting. And uh, this is the first time that this meeting is outside of San Francisco. So the entire time this meeting has been around, it was in San Francisco. And this year it went on the road and we're going to Houston, Texas. So looking forward to that. Awesome. All right. Well, um, that concludes the conference uh, segment for this episode. We will certainly highlight other conferences in future episodes, uh, but these are three good ones and highly recommended. My name is Dr. Kevin B. Johnson. I'm professor and chair of the Vanderbilt University Medical Center Department of Biomedical Informatics with a joint appointment in pediatrics. And you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. The next section that we're going to do today is talking about training. It's our hope that this podcast will be educational for those just getting into the field of biomedical informatics. Jason and I are both very much committed to training students, postdocs, residents, and fellows. We're also very committed to mentoring junior faculty. In this section, we plan to cover topics such as interviewing for jobs, promotion and tenure, grant advice, productivity, and navigating politics. Today, I'm going to talk to you about three strategies that I use for time management. Number one, there are exactly 24 hours in a day. That's right, all of us have the exact same number of hours in a day. Even though you may think that some people are much more productive than you, they too only have 24 hours. If you sit back and think about those 24 hours and how you spend that time, on average, people should sleep eight hours a day, or at least that's what they say we should do. People on average work eight hours a day, and that leaves eight other hours to fill your time. Now, you might be thinking that you don't quite sleep for eight hours, you sleep more like six, and you may not work for eight hours, you may work for more like 10. Well, those still add up to the 16 hours, which means that you still have eight other hours in the day to do other things. So one of the activities that I did to try to really think about this is to track my time. So I read this in a book. For a day or two, every 30 minutes, write down what you did with your time. You will be amazed to see how much time you waste in that other eight hours that you could be really productive either on work things, on being creative, so cooking or doing something artistic, on getting to the gym or doing some sort of physical activity, I used to always say, I don't have time to work out. Well, turns out I do have 30 minutes if I just think about those other eight hours of time. And so I would suggest tracking your time, even for just one day, to see what are you doing in that other eight hours of time when you're sitting around telling people, I don't have time to do whatever it is you're trying to get done. Number two. These are called the fringe hours, so thinking about the fringe hours. 
I read a book by Jessica Turner called The Fringe Hours, and in it she talks about those little nuggets of time that we typically waste making use of that time. So what does that mean? Well, let's say you go to the doctor's office. You arrive 10 minutes before your appointment. Your appointment doesn't start on time. It ends up starting about 10 minutes after. And so you sat there for 20 minutes. What did you do with that 20 minutes? What I often do now that I'm more intentional about it is that's the time that I get on social media. I'll check Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Or sometimes I'll take a book with me to read. Or sometimes I'll take a manuscript with me that I need to read or review or edit. But it's a little bit of time that you can't really get that much work done, but you might be able to get something off of your to-do list that doesn't take much time. The same kind of thing happens throughout my day when I'm you know, waiting for a meeting to start. I have a few minutes that I'm waiting for an elevator. You know, We have some slow elevators. You stand around waiting for five minutes. Well, I could have actually gotten through the latest Twitter feed in that five minutes. And so I really try to focus on those little nuggets of time. And importantly related to that, I do not get on social media when I have a two-hour window of time that I could be productive. That is not the time to get on Instagram and start looking to see what pictures everyone is posting. I really try to save those for those little nuggets of time in between things that I'm doing. And then number three, try to add planning out your day into your morning routine. Um, you may or may not have a morning routine, and maybe that's something that I can talk about on an, another podcast, because I do think having a good morning routine is, is a good part of kind of keeping your day focused. But spending just a few minutes, it could be five, it could be 15, intentionally thinking about what are the main things you need to get done today. You know, what a lot of us do, and what I certainly used to do, is I'd wake up and immediately get on my email and see what had come in while I was sleeping. Well, when you do that, that allows other people to prioritize what's important to you for your day and other people to set the tone for your day. So I've stopped doing that. When I'm enjoying my morning coffee, I think about what do I need to get done today? I might look at my to-do list. I might even look at my calendar to see what meetings I have so that I make sure I'm ready for here are the top three things that I have to get done today or here is the most important person that I have to talk to today because of some meeting that we have or something going on later in the week. So if you can just be intentional with those, you know, five to 15 minutes so that you are focused and intentional about your priorities and goals for the day, you will find the rest of the day, the time falls into place so much better. I don't know, Jason, do you have anything to add? Those are uh, great comments, Marilyn. And you know, one of the most common questions I get, especially from junior junior faculty or students, is how do you have time to do everything? You know, they look at what I do as a, as a leader, as a senior investigator, and I'm busy, I'm running here and there, and I have a million things to do, and they just can't comprehend. You know, their lives are busy enough, right? Graduate students feel like their lives are busy, and, and they are. But they look at what I do and just think, oh, my God, how could I ever do that? If I'm having trouble handling graduate school and the responsibilities that come with that or a postdoctoral position, uh, how am I going to handle all the million things that you do as a, as a senior investigator? And, and, and I think, you know, you learn over time a lot of the tips that you're talking about, how to be more efficient with your time. And, and, and you know, time is my most valuable commodity. And, and I actually, one of the things I do is I maintain my own calendar. I, 
I control my calendar. I don't let anybody else control my calendar. I don't have an assistant that does that. And that way I can manage my time more efficiently and, and I know when I need to schedule things and when I need to carve out time to work on a grant or a paper and, and being very uh, methodical about how I plan my day, how I plan my week and being in complete control of that. Like you said, don't let other people control your time. That is so important. Yeah, I think the one thing you said, time is your most valuable commodity. And I think that's so true. I mean, even for the trainees, if you haven't realized that yet, you know, let that stick with you. Your time is the most important commodity that you have. And grabbing onto that at whatever stage you are and using it and keeping that in mind throughout your career is essential. One of the questions I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm very active on Twitter. And one of the questions I get a lot is how in the world do you have time to do Twitter all day? And uh, what people don't know is that I actually queue up my tweets ahead of time. So on the weekend, when I do have more personal time or more time to do social media, um, I will queue up tweets to go out during the week. I will schedule them ahead of time. So they go out, you know, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, etc. Um, and I also typically do Twitter early in the morning or late at night. Um, and very rare, I'm not just sitting there on Twitter all day long, even though it looks like it. And so most of the Twitter activity, I would say 75% of the Twitter activity you see from me is really scheduled ahead of time. When, when I have that, that slice of the day that you were talking about to work on that specific thing. Mm-hmm. That's a great tip. All right. Well, we hope this was useful and on to the next segment. Okay, it is now time for our closing remarks. Marilyn, do you have closing remarks? Of course. Um, I guess the the thing I want to just have folks think about is how the things we've talked about today tie together. So Um, We talked a lot earlier about deep phenotyping and how pulling meaningful information out of electronic health records can be incredibly powerful. And then we also talked about the paper on methods for artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is, is putting those together in meaningful and powerful ways. So how can we use machine learning and artificial intelligence in these vast, rich data sets from electronic health records to do better and better phenotyping. I think there's a lot of work to be done there and a lot of uh, information to be learned. So I hope that uh, this gave some people some ideas for research directions or things to start to think about. Um, The last thing I would say is just how fun this has been. You know, this is something we've talked about for months and months. And I listen to podcasts on my way to and from work every day. And there really aren't many in this space that talk about the topics that are of interest to me and the things that I do at work in terms of my research and my training. And so I'm really glad that we finally did this. Yeah, I agree, Marilyn. Um, I also listen to podcasts to and from work, and uh, we have been talking about this for a long time. So I'm, I'm really, really pleased that we were able to get it done. And um, I really look forward to working with you on future episodes. I can't wait to get started on the next one. And, um, and before we close, uh, during one of my brief pockets of social media time uh, this morning, I uh, saw this great tweet from a... Um, a student uh, named Caitlin Kirby, um, 
who tweeted uh, on October 7th about her successful PhD dissertation defense. And uh, she goes on to say, in the spirit of acknowledging and normalizing failure in the process of getting her PhD, I defended in a skirt made of rejection letters from the course of my PhD. And she's got a picture of herself with this handmade skirt with, you can see, printed out rejection letters, I assume from journals and other things. Uh, and she's smiling. And I just thought that was just so perfect because, you know, our academic careers are just filled with, with rejection and failure. <laughs> it's just uh, sad but true. It's a, it's a normal part of academic life and something we all have to get used to. And, 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 um, and, and I, think she's doing a, I think she's doing a great service here normalizing this because, because it is so common and something we have to deal with. Perhaps that should be my new side hustle is, is uh, taking all of the, the not discussed grant summary statements <laughs> and the journal rejection letters and making an entire wardrobe. I probably could make a whole wardrobe out of them I'm, at this I'm, point. I'm sure you could and I could as well. <laughs> so, okay, uh, I'm sure this is a topic we will discuss more in future episodes because it, it is uh, a really important topic. All right, this has been really fun, Marilyn. I think it's time to close. All right, thanks. Yep, bye-bye. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online at bmipodcast.org. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia. Philadelphia.